Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Richard Kirsten-Smith and Jeremy Campbell from Absinthe Film Entertainment, plus writer Matthew Broughton about their new Sky comedy drama, Orson Welles in Norwich. And Paul Davis, senior EMEA sales director for Getty Images, explains how documentary producers are making use of the company's video archives during lockdown. Absinthe Film Entertainment's Richard Curzon-Smith and Jeremy Campbell have a history of bringing fantastical real-life stories to screen. Now with writer Matthew Broughton, they've produced Orson Welles in Norwich, a single half-hour comedy drama starring Robbie Coltrane for Sky Arts that recalls how the famed director landed up working at a local TV station in East Anglia when he was facing financial difficulties. The trio spoke with Michael Picard about their fascination with such stories, why the project took longer to make than three seasons of Game of Thrones, and discuss how the industry will respond to the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, I've been in the sort of telly industry as a freelance director and producer and sometimes writer for, you know, 20 years. Uh, and I've worked a lot with indies. I never thought I particularly wanted to set up a company. But as the sort of landscape changed, it became clear that if I was going to get commissions myself, it was quite a good idea to sort of do that through a company or with a company. So I started up a company that worked in association with others, Canadian, American and British kind of co-producers. And then this opportunity came along. Matt and I are uh, old buddies from years, years back. And as soon as we got this as an opportunity of a kind of commission, we just thought, well, you know, maybe now's the time to sort of kind of do it, use a fairly high profile drama to kind of launch ourselves. So we've done that. And the idea behind the company is that we'll always use real stories, but we'll do them in all sorts of different formats, <laughs> whether that's documentary, whether it's factual, whether it's a podcast, whether it's drama, whether it's drama series or a movie. But our thing is we're not necessarily in the same league to be able to just go and try and do a precinct drama, for example. But we believe that we can tell any factual story across any format in a way that is quite unique and that we obviously push factual content with the Orson Welles one, as Matt will tell you, a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more attenuated than uh, than normal. But, uh, but that's, you yeah, know, that's the idea. And so, I mean, you, you've kind of mentioned it a bit there, you know, your current project that is now on, um, it's going to be on Sky Arts and it's on Now TV, Orson Welles in Norwich. Um, <laughs> I mean, the title has so many questions just of its own, but um, introduce us to a bit of the story. And, and I guess we should mention the fact that this is part of their urban myth strand. And it's, I think the tagline is sort of true-ish stories so can you tell us a bit about just how you've taken that nugget of of maybe factual story and and sort of stretched it to the 30 minute running time yes yeah so it's so it's um Orson Welles in the early 70s is kind of failing as a film director he can't get his films made no one wants to finance them he has a reputation for being difficult and he ends up kind of losing finance on these on his kind of pet project a film called F for Fake which he's been trying to make in Paris and in America and he's, it's not really working and and he has to take other work on in order to try to fund the film. He does a few adverts and things like that, but he, he can't really do it. Um, and a possibility comes to go to Norwich and Norwich uh, um, Anglia TV have just had a hit with Sale of the Century, which they are beginning to sell around the world and make money from. So they have some money um, and they want to kind of create a drama series uh, of individual kind of episodes. Uh, and they want Orson Welles to come and work on it with them. Orson goes there thinking that he's either going to be a director or um, an actor. Actually, all they really want him to do is to present the shows, to do the kind of like the 
30 second intro to each episode. This happens in early 70s. So Orson, you know, desperate for money on his arse, essentially, heads out to Norwich that he knows nothing about and finds himself in a backwater of Anglia TV in Norwich, working with parochial local kind of TV people, doing a job that he doesn't want to be doing. And, and he gets he's instantly bored and interesting and uninterested. But Orson being Orson, a prankster, a magician, a kind of a person that is difficult to work with in some ways, but certainly playful, tries to kind of make the most of that situation. And what I've done in terms of the story, working with Richard, is that we've we've looked at who Orson is and the kind of man he is and what he does with his kind of life at different kind of key moments. Um, and we've seen the way he kind of behaves and taken some of the stories and then pushed them all into this kind of intense period of his working in, in Norwich. He's making a film about hoaxing and, and fakery. So that's what we run with. It, you know, he starts off thinking that he's going to make some money out of them. So he pranks them. And then he realises that what it actually adds a whole dimension to his fascination with fakery. So he pushes he pushes it even further. Yeah, at this point, he's very interested in art forgers, things that appear to be real but are not real. And he's very interested in his own kind of persona. He's obsessed by using false noses and changing his appearance and pretending to be someone he's not. Uh, so what he does in uh, when he gets to Norwich, uh, without, I don't want to give uh, too much of the plot away, but hopefully people will go to it and watch it. It's, it's, it's a kind of a fun story. But he, he kind of manipulates the situation so that he, he takes control of it. He's no longer just the presenter of these these episodes. He is directing his own real-life drama unfolding. But also where, where it comes from is we had worked the year before with Robbie Coltrane and asked Robbie, well, you know, it'd be quite good to do something, wouldn't it? So, you know, who interests you? And he said, awesome. What's the pitch process like for a show like this when you go into Sky and, and they're presumably looking for some wacky tales for this urban myth strand? How's that conversation like in, in the room, I guess, in the olden days when we used to meet in rooms and, and you pitch things in person? I mean, what, what was that meeting like? It, it's a, it was a really long process as these things always are. I mean, you know, dramas tend to be be a longer process. Have fantastic executive at Sky called Talusha Gulani, who was just with us the whole way. But the whole thing just does take a long time because Urban Myth, particularly, they have to find a sort of balance of their shows and they can only do a very limited amount per series. So the actual process took, took a couple of years. And, and at one point, I did point out to Talusha that for, for our 29 minute or 25 minute comedy drama, that while we were waiting to get into production with it, they'd actually made three series of Game of Thrones but you know that's just how networks work isn't it you know that's just all them all speaking to each other you know what was fantastic was that once we found, found the story that she loved she's just like the sort of archetypal terrier she just wouldn't let it go and you know and it's then you've, you're fine you know when you've got someone on the inside that really can really see it and loves it then you just have the it's, the, it's then a, it's just a sort of war of attrition after that How was the shoot? Did you venture up to Norwich or uh, were you in a studio somewhere? How how did it go down? Well, obviously, um, we would have loved to go to Norwich, but uh, there's a, the phrase, you know, you can't uh, bring the mountain to Mohammed uh, comes to, to mind. So Robbie, getting Robbie to Norwich with his problems with his knee wasn't going to be the easiest. So we, we sort of constructed the production so we could do it in Glasgow, which is where, where he lives, uh, which is great. And, and Rich and I have done a couple of productions up there and uh, we've got a crew of people that we've got used to working with and we got them on board with this, which is great. Great. Initially, we wanted to go to Norfolk because we needed a windmill, which does actually feature in the script. But as we found out when we were wrecking in, in Scotland, there are no windmills in Scotland. <laughs> 
<laughs> or near near Glasgow that we could find anyway. Uh, so we had to sort of think around that, and we actually had to do some green screen stuff for the scenes that happen in front, you know, in front of the exterior of the windmill. Uh, and we shot that actually quite close to um, our editor. So the fakery sort of continued through our production. Uh, so none of it's real. Tell us a bit about the work that you've done previously that has led you to this. Well, point. the ones we, I, I, what what I like to do is to find real life stories and get into them in the way that you would approach a movie, you know, close focus, beat by beat, maximising the kind of proper film narrative capacity of a real story. So we did a film about um, Rudolf Nureyev's arrest uh, in 1961 uh, in an airport in Paris right at the height of the Cold War. And within that sort of moment, within that six-week period, there was a kind of extraordinary kind of romance and Cold War drama. It seemed a sort of natural focus for a drama documentary. We've done a couple in America, true crime ones, one about the hunt for the killer of Martin Luther King, James Earl Ray, the FBI hunt, which was a complete fiasco. We did another one about the hunt for um, the American serial killer, the son of Sam, which isn't a sort of like sort of vicarious look at the killer and what he did. It's the story about the investigation to find him across all five boroughs. So what we've done so far tend to be, you know, doing really kind of close analysis and looking into stories that, you know, both great narratives and have a sort of wider cultural impact. What's your interest in these kinds of stories, Matthew? And um, I mean, and how do you find them? I mean, they sound uh, too too good to be true, don't they? Stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah, it, it norm- it's normally I kind of come across a, a small incident or a small moment in someone's life where you, you think, oh, actually, that's that's the that's the kind of key to the whole of who they are, you know, their identity. And um, with with this one, with the Orson Welles thing, he was a man that was kind of, um, you know, he'd been at the height of his powers. He'd been possibly one of the most famous filmmakers in the world, and certainly kind of considered one of the one of the greatest directors. And and suddenly he found himself in exile. He was unable to make anything, and he kind of lost touch with who he was. And the idea that he ends up in Norwich, there's something about that that just makes his kind of sense of isolation, his sense of being lost, all the more kind of not only kind of intense and kind of strange, but also very funny. I think it's just that it's kind of a fish out of water. And all the stories that I look at always have these kind of little moments in them. I've written on a whole range of different kind of uh, subjects and different formats. I've written children's drama, I've written soaps, I've written kind of feature films. So, you know, um, I started off in avant-garde theatre, working with companies like Complicite and things like that. So I kind of I've been quite mercurial in the stuff that I've done. But all of the things I've done takes you know twenty years later, I look at it and think, oh, the reason I did it was because I was kind of interested in identity and and of course in getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, there's a, I did I did one for the History Channel in America a few years ago about Charles Manson. And so there, I, I normally go into these things with a big question. My question of that is, how did a man manage to persuade these very kind of beautiful teenagers? How did he manage to turn them into murderers and, and torturers? And how did that change the world? So really big questions I don't really understand, but kind of see from the outside as just being interesting. And then through writing the drama, try to kind of, I don't know, kind of investigate, analyse, work out what I find interesting about it. And it's normally an element for all of these things, even in the darkest places that I think is strangely comic and uh, alluring, you know, seductive about those ideas. And that was certainly true of Orson Welles. And I've worked on a number of projects where the main characters are real people. I've done Marvin Gaye, Frank Zeppa, um, Oliver Reed, Salvador Dali, Charles Manson, Vincent Price. I did a play about him for, on radio. Um, so yeah, so the, those kind of, these enigmatic, charismatic figures that are sort of puzzling and complex. Those are the sort of things I look for. I look for just a little kind of a hint of something that I'm intrigued by and want to kind of investigate further. And then just kind of just follow my nose to, into the stories 
and, and see where it takes me. The next one that we're thinking about um, or that we're developing together is the story of how David Bowie ended up on the Bing Crosby Christmas show. But the thing about that is that you go into that thinking we've got Bing, this old establishment figure who's kind of this you know, old man in a cardigan singing these classic tunes. And you've got Bowie, this kind of alien from the future coming in in the clash. And what you realise quite quickly is, is that Bing is much more radical and dangerous and strange than Bowie. And when they meet, the kind of collision is is, is really surprising. It's obviously been a, an interesting and, and tricky year for everyone in the business. Just how have you sort of managed to navigate, you know, the last few months in terms of developing new projects or continuing projects that you've had on the books? We've got a sort of uh, a few sort of up and running. I mean, what what I sort of personally found, and it, it's so odd in that people talk to you. you, you can kind of get access to people probably easier. Certainly at the beginning of it, people love putting themselves about. So you get to speak to commissioners and all sorts of exciting people. Uh, where it became a little bit more trying is when you get them to open their wallets. Jeremy, how have you found the last few months, obviously, as I guess, more of a, in a producing role? How have you, have you navigated it and, and been able to develop? Well, it's sort of in some ways been quite fortuitous uh, for me and, and, and for this relationship with Richard and Absinthe. I mean, brief history, I've been in production for years. I, I've been in the production department, production managing, coordinating, and eventually line producing and field producing. Uh, in fact, I worked with Richard years ago on one of his projects, which was about Pinochet, the Chilean dictator. And that's when I first worked with him and then started working with him again a few years ago. And we did something about Oscar Wilde, the BBC, and then just recently a series about uh, novels, the history of the novel. And then uh, Orson came along and that's where we sort of decided to join together and make a go of absinthe. And actually finishing Orson, literally, I think we finished the final mix and did the sort of physical delivery to Sky literally the weekend before we went into lockdown. So that was lucky. (laughs) Uh, And then we sort of started the process of doing the final delivery to Sky and then starting, you know, and then really working on our our slate, on our sort of business proposition, our business plan. And we had a lot of time, you know, together and speaking to other people to do that. And obviously, you know, fantastic technology like Zoom have really aided in that. And just to have that time to really consider the projects and, you know, where we want to go and where we see ourselves in a few years and how to present that um, has just been fantastic. But obviously, we'd rather be out making stuff and having the opportunity to do that. And hopefully now pandemic sort of we're getting some sort of handle on it. We, we can get out there. We've made one thing remotely during lockdown, a little kind of dance film in, um, in St. Petersburg. But, you know, the other thing is working, getting to know and work with people that I love and have worked with as a, you know, as a, so, so Matt wrote the first drama film that I ever managed to get to do on telly, which was about the surrealist putting Salvador Dali on trial for crimes against surrealism. And Matt and I have, we're constantly just exchanging like ideas for real stories. And I've followed all of kind of like Matt's written the most amazing, I mean, as well as tracks and as well as all his amazing radio stuff, he's written a lot of very funny, amazingly complex and interesting real stories. Like the story of Oliver Reed and Keith Moon's friendship. He's done one about Frank Zappa and his English secretary. So that, you know, these are the sorts of stories that, that I just, I love them. They just work on so many levels. So like our Pinochet thing wasn't about sort of Pinochet in, in Chile. It was about Pinochet under house arrest in Surrey. What does the film um, sort of mean for, I guess, your ambitions with Absinthe and, and kind of what, what's next for you guys in terms of moving forward? Well, we're doing 
doing a you know a long running passion project for us which is we're going to do a feature doc about all the adopted children of Josephine Baker you know the um, African-American icon who lived in Paris in the 20s what people don't know is that she adopted in the 50s and early 60s 13 children from all around the world different races different beliefs and grew them all up together in a fairy tale chateau in the middle of France as a sort of social experiment to prove the obsolescence of racism in the civil rights era. Uh, and that was a, an experiment that turned into quite an extraordinary story. We're developing two or three brilliant sort of podcast ideas. There's one with a writer from The Economist called Simon Akam, which is about what happens when the glaciers give back what they've swallowed up. And it's a story about a number of plane crashes that have taken place in a glacier under Mont Blanc by Chamonix uh, and the extraordinary sort of mystery as, as the wreckage is coming back out now of piecing together how these crashes actually happened. As I said with Matt we're going to develop a lot more factual drama ideas as, as I say you know we're going to use Bowie and Bing as the next one to, to try and get commissioned and we're just taking a whole sort of series of stories that we can do as dramas and ones which we can just you know just do as straightforward documentaries. You've obviously all worked in the industry for a little while and and know the ins and outs of it. I mean, how do you see the industry kind of responding at the moment to the challenges it's facing and, and what, what needs to be done, do you think, just to get back a, a sense of normality perhaps or or to make sure that continue to do what you guys do? Uh, well, I think that, I mean, the pandemic in a way, you know, in terms of the way film and TV people in terms of production are incredibly resourceful and always find a way around all sorts of adversary. And I think the pandemic in a way is a bit like bad weather. You just have to put, you know, the processes and measures in place to ensure that you know you can conduct a production and, and film keeping everyone safe I think uh, you know obviously it adds considerable costs so that has to be factored into budgets and, and the development process a bit as well and and it slows down shooting it seems a little bit but overall I mean it seems like production is ramping up and I think hopefully we'll, we'll sort of be stronger for it it's a bit leaner and a bit stronger uh, in terms of development I'll throw over to, to Matt and Richard for that. Our feeling is that in, interview-based documentary is um, the American networks seem to be a little bit slower to commit. But once you, you can get that stuff commissioned, that's not so much of a problem. I think you know. I think kickstarting drama has been much much harder, and probably much harder for smaller little companies. You know, if you're sort of a huge industry player, whether British or American, then it's all about insurance, isn't it? Really now. All I, all I would say really is that I, I've just spent three months working on a radio series so um, radio very quickly adapted to the situation and we created virtual studios so we had actors we did a zoom call like this every morning of studio we would go into the virtual studio and it would almost like be sitting in those in those boxes but in terms of kind of tv and for the screen i, I mean i think it's you know, genuinely kind of uncertain period and there is a kind of an element of no one really knows exactly how this is going to pan out and i have a number of things i'm developing in a different kind of for different companies and different people um and all i know for certain is that everything has slowed down a lot and that there's no longer these opportunities popping up at quite the same rate as they used to. And while people are kind of wanting to talk about ideas and wanting to kind of get things made, there's also that kind of element that there is a backlog because things have slowed down, that there is kind of these things are not flowing as easily as they had before. And let's face it, they weren't flowing that easily before either. You know, people, it was always tough. I think things are happening. And I think, as Jeremy says, you know, there's a kind of resourcefulness in the kind of in working in this in this world that makes things seem possible, even when they kind of at certain points feel very dark. But, um, you know, hopefully things will pick up quite 
quite quickly and then we'll get back on track. Richard Curzon-Smith, Jeremy Campbell and Matthew Broughton. Getty Images is best known as a photography agency, but the company is sitting on a vast library of video clips and recently struck a deal with NBC Universal to add its catalogue to the slate. Senior Getty Sales Director for EMEA, Paul Davis, spoke with Clive Whittingham about this latest alliance and how the firm is now proving a key ally to factual producers looking to make archive-rich documentaries during lockdown. So my name is Paul Davis. I am the senior director uh, for our broadcast uh, team um, in EMEA, working with Getty Images. And we are the largest content distribution uh, and aggregator uh, of stills, video, music in the world. Um, we're celebrating our, our 25th birthday this year. Um, the company was set up by Mark Getty and uh, Jonathan Klein. And I think there is... A misconception maybe in the market that Getty Images only have uh, images. And of course, we are also uh, one of the largest video licensing companies in the world as well. We have over 300 million images, over 11 million video clips online, and we represent millions of hours of, of uh, video offline as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I guess you're most closely associated with photographs, but there's there's more, more to it than that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're the trusted partner to some of the world's leading video partners, including BBC Motion Gallery, Sky News, Discovery, AFP, ITN, and of course, um, now NBC News. So NBC News is the reason we've come together. Can you just give us the overview of the deal for people that haven't read the story at this point? Yeah, I mean, look, we're absolutely super, super excited about this. I mean, NBC are one of the um, the largest and most iconic broadcasters in the world. Um, and we will have access to the entirety of the NBC video archive dating back to the 1940s. That is also across all of the uh, of the NBC's iconic um, shows, such as the Today Show, um, the NBC Nightly News and Meet the Press. So it is pretty much the simplest way of describing it is anything that's been shot by an NBC camera, we will be licensing. That's quite a, a large library, I would imagine. What, uh, what sort yes. of content can producers expect to be able to access from, from that? Absolutely. I mean, of course, NBC is, uh, as he says, an iconic US broadcaster, but they have shot news stories, I iconic stories from across the world. Um, so if you can think of the major events that have happened since the late 1940s to present day, NBC have shot this content. So it is news content on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as iconic events from the Vietnam War to the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. It is a comprehensive news archive. And are you targeting other news broadcasters with that, like BBC News 24 or whatever, or is it documentary producers that can make use of this? Or what, what's the target market for it? Well, uh, Getty Images' main market is across the media agency and corporate world. Um, but of course, one of the main targets will be across the TV program makers. So TV production companies can gain access to the archive to be able to build their own narrative, their own stories across the market. And in, in when we describe about how Getty Images work in, in the market, it is very much about working collaboratively with these production companies and, and essentially demystifying how they can gain access to archive and, and build the narratives from the ground. I think it's very, very important that we get involved at the very early stages of productions from the development 
and ideation um, of a production. And that allows us to be able to be a real creative partner with production companies. We've been working in this manner for, for, for a long, long time, but our video archive has grown significantly, especially over the last five years. As I mentioned, we already look after the BBC since the 1st of January 2014, ITN and Sky. And that allows us to really break down many walls and create business models that allows production companies to tap into a massive resource across news, sport, entertainment, archive, um, and really building programs that resonate globally. Are you finding uh, that business has actually been quite good for you in 2020? Because one of the things that we heard a lot of at the start of lockdown from documentary producers was there'll be a lot of archive shows produced for, for obvious reasons. Are you one of the companies that can actually profit from the horrors we're going through? Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think what is probably more important, I mean, as I just mentioned there, is that we have always been working in this manner. I think the crisis has meant that we are seeing new producers come to us right now that maybe we have not worked with before, but we're working hard to help existing and new customers create programs in this busy time. We were experiencing growth before the crisis. Um, I think now, though, as, as companies are having to try and be able to create content in, I guess, quarantine-friendly uh, environments, we've been able to essentially be able to open up our archive and ensure that producers can gain access to our content um, which obviously has got minimal risk. It removes the issues in terms of location shooting. There's so many known and unknown factors that production companies have to deal with. But we can provide a platform that companies can go on, download high-res broadcast quality straight to their desktop across the biggest broadcaster studios, production companies, content in the world. Let's take sort of a hypothetical example like, I, I don't know, Princess Diana or something like that. If I'm a documentary producer making an anniversary doc on Princess Diana, what sort of services can you guys provide? At what stage in the process should I be coming to, to see you and, and how does it all work from a starting point yeah so i think one of the key parts as i as i mentioned earlier is to is to make sure we get involved at the production at the very very early stage so in development that means the production company can work with our research team um, and we can then creatively search our entire online and offline library to really build out the idea to ascertain if a producer can create um, uh, essentially a whole production from all of our content offering. I think that is actually a very important part for us because it provides the comfort, as you mentioned there with, with Princess Diana, where we can open up all of our offline content from the likes of the BBC and ITN, tap then into the likes of NBC from more of a US, from an international perspective, and then build out the creative content so that, again, the, the location shooting isn't required. What we're finding now is that we can actually be able to provide over 80 to 90% of a production company's needs and they do not need to leave their editing suite. Can you give us some specific examples of docs that you've worked on semi-recently that, that speak to this? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll mention um, I'll mention three really quickly. So if I look at a recent production we did in the UK with a company called Rare TV on a production called Unexplained Files, 
that was exactly where we actually brought our research team in at the start, provided a proof of concept to be able to look across all the ancient history and civilizations. And then from that, we were able to illustrate and provide that comfort that they were able to create a full 10-hour show without setting foot in Egypt. So that illustrated that they were able to create a essentially a whole production where there was interviews using our content, um, of course, creatively done. Um, and that was um, created for, uh, for discovery. As almost 75% of that content was, was from Getty Images. Another production with Icon Films um, for um, Mysteries of the Deep, um, which was essentially, this production was greenlit before COVID-19, actually. Uh, and we worked creatively with, with Icon Films and a creative director, um, Stephen McQuillan, and which has actually been huge success in, in, in the market already. It has exceeded all ratings. Um, and again, about 50% of the content came from Getty Images, where they were able to tap into all of our, our actual creative content. Another recent production was with Stars and Strife Productions, where we, we worked with a research consultancy business um, who essentially knew they were going to need both contemporary and archive stock content. And they were able to go onto the Getty Images website, download high-res quality content and ensure that that allowed them to be able to re-edit parts of the film because it was it was on the Black Lives um, Matters um, movement. And it meant that they were able to, again, have that safety in their edit, editing suite to be able to download a whole broad ar- array of content across um, archive and creative content. So for documentary producers or factual producers who can't travel, it's a, it's a good resource. But on the flip side, you also can't travel. Uh, I know that you've you've been on the same event circuit that that I've been on and enjoyed the delights of real screen in New Orleans and and things like that. How is it doing your job without physical television markets, which now sadly don't look like they're going to return anytime really that soon? That has most definitely been the biggest challenge for us. I think we are seeing a lot more of situations like this, Clive, where we're having. A, a lot of um, virtual meetings. We've done a, a number of webinars, one recently with, with PACT. Uh, we did another one with Indie Lab, where essentially we are illustrating to the market how we can open up our content and, and basically how we can help producers create their stories at this time. I definitely feel that the TV industry is, is predicated on relationships. And we have built a lot of those relationships before lockdown and COVID-19. And it's actually allowed us to build upon these existing relationships relationships, albeit now virtually, um, which are now even stronger. It's difficult because, you know, as you say, mentioned the likes of Real Screen in New Orleans or Cannes, you're, you're not going to be able to have serendipitous meetings, for example, at an event. However, working creatively with the market, knowing that we are the trusted partner to so many other broadcasters and production companies mean that we can work creatively with production companies, even in this online world. I will say, I think, I think it has in many ways meant it, that we've, it's never been easier to be an international company because of the fact that people have gone online. So where you might have had to feel you had to go to different uh, locations to companies across Europe, now people are a lot more open to have meetings on Zoom. So that that has actually um, somewhat made it more cost effective definitely easier to produce for, for production companies. And everybody's trying to win that that race for, for eyeballs. And I think it's definitely allowed us to create new relationships with people that we might not have actually had before. So there's positives and, and of course, there's, there's the challenges as well. Yeah, Australia is suddenly very close, albeit 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Yeah, Zoom, there's uh, a lot of very strange, uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of strange hours that we're all keeping these days, actually. Yeah, for sure. So is this the new normal or do you think, oh, sorry, that's such a cliche, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. 
yeah. is, is this new normal or do you think we'll be back on the plane and back on the Quisette and back in New Orleans or wherever it is the same that we were before? I, I definitely feel there's going to be changes. There, there's no doubt about that. And even when I think with our company now, people who maybe were sending teams across the world to shoot content now know that they can use content from Getty Images to reduce their overall production budget and enable them to be able to essentially use that budget they've saved to create their actual iconic shots themselves that they can be remembered for. I think events has definitely changed. I, I feel that people will definitely want to have FaceTime in the future for this. This, this. As I said, relationships are so important in the TV industry. We will go back to that. But there is definitely going to be changes about how people shoot content and maybe they will start asking questions of what they need to do in the future now that they know that they can still create high quality productions without having to leave their editing suite. Paul Davis from Getty Images. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>